Last Sunday night, we looked at five excuses that might keep us from sharing the gospel. And just to review those, those were uh, these phrases or an extension of them, such as, I don't know their language. Evangelism is illegal or restricted in some way. Sharing the gospel could cause problems for me. Other things seem more urgent, or perhaps I just don't know anybody who's not a Christian. And we looked at the answer to all of those excuses is the question of our motivation. Christ's love compels us to be ambassadors of the gospel. And so perhaps we're persuaded that this is something that we're supposed to do. How do we go about it? Because that's really the next hurdle that we have to overcome, the next obstacle. How do I do this? I think that there are three main parts of what we need to do in evangelism. We need to have the right message. We need to use the right method. And we need to have the right manner as we present these things. So first of all, our message is the gospel and the proper response to the gospel. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now the reason I say that it is the gospel and the proper response to the gospel is that sometimes when we think about evangelism, we think about the response as part of the gospel. And I think that it's not part of the gospel message, but it's so closely connected that you can't give the gospel message without also expecting a response. So they're distinct but very closely related. What then is the gospel? If we look here at 1 Corinthians 15, we see that the gospel is about Christ. We'll start in verse 3. We'll come back to verses 1 and 2 in a moment, but let's start in verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that He appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also." So Paul says, in verse 1, I made known to you the gospel. In verse 3, he describes what is involved in that. First of all, that Christ died for our sins. And I think that this is important to emphasize. Uh, the book that I mentioned last week, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism, listed out some false things that we might think are the gospel or that people in our culture might think are the gospel, but that we have to understand are not the gospel. The, not, the gospel is not a message that everything is okay. A lot of people want to say, well, Christianity is a religion of acceptance or just a place where I can fit in and just and everything's okay between me and God. That's not the gospel. Or they'll say, well, the gospel is Jesus wants to be your friend. And while God does have a relationship with his people, Jesus wants to be your friend in a way that sort of overlooks everything bad that we do and says it's all okay is certainly not the gospel either. It's also not Jesus will fix everything that's wrong in your life. And this is a, a temptation when we see people around us whose lives are not going well. Trust in Jesus and all this will be okay. And the reality is, as we'll see a little bit later, it won't necessarily all be okay, humanly speaking. Problems won't all go away simply because you have trusted in Christ. The gospel is not live a good life. And this is essential that we recognize that the gospel is not just about living a good life because we 
want to follow God, we want to obey God, but if we overemphasize that without making it clear that belief in Christ comes first, then you have essentially people who are trying to work their way to heaven. What is the gospel? Christ died for our sins. We're sinners. Jesus died to pay for sins. It says that in verse 3. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. But it's not just that Christ died, but also that He was buried. Why does Paul say this? I think he says this to show the fact that Christ actually died. Because what was the rumor that was being put forth at the time of Christ's death? Well, He didn't actually die. The disciples have, have stole, the, the rumor was that the disciples have stolen away His body. Today, people will say, well, Christ didn't really die. He just appeared to die. They'll come up with all sorts of of reasons why it didn't actually take place. But Paul is saying, no, Christ died, Christ was buried. He did actually die. Furthermore, Christ was raised. And He appeared. So it wasn't just that He was raised and nobody knew about it. It says that He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, in addition to Peter, the Twelve, James, all the apostles, and to Paul. So, if there is any question about the fact of Christ's resurrection, more than 500 people saw Him after He had been raised from the dead. So it wasn't just on the basis of one or two people, it was on the basis of hundreds of eyewitnesses saw the risen Christ. This is essential because otherwise our faith is empty. So what is the Gospel? Christ died, was buried, and raised on the third day. Now certainly there's much more that we can add to that, and if someone doesn't understand, for example, who Jesus is, there's a lot of explanation that has to go into making that clear. If uh, someone doesn't understand uh, what it means to follow Him and look for His return, we could certainly explain that as well. But at its heart, there is this idea that Christ died to pay the penalty of sin, and that God accepted His payment, and that He lives forevermore. What then is the proper response to the Gospel? The proper response to the gospel, I think, is seen in verses 1 and 2. The message must be proclaimed, first of all, in verse 1. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. There can't be a response to the message unless someone has heard the message. So the message is, Christ died, was buried, rose again. Someone has to take that to, to people and explain it to them. There also has to be a response on the part of the people who hear the message. The message must be received. And we know from other texts that that involves faith and repentance and so forth. But the message also must be followed. We see in verse 2, in which you stand, at the end of verse 1, in which you stand, verse 2, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what happens? Faith is shown real by continuing in it. What does it say? If you hold it fast. Faith is shown real also by evaluating it. Unless you believed in vain. Now some people look at the believed in vain as saying those people didn't really believe. But in context, probably what that's referring to is verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is vain. Your faith is in vain. So it's not necessarily saying that they haven't really believed, but the question of whether Christianity is true. And so Paul is saying, you need to stick with this, and you need to recognize, as I'm explaining the rest of this chapter, your faith is not in vain because Christ has in fact been raised. And so 
The gospel is, simply put, about Jesus. Who He is, what He did, and then very closely connected with that is our response to that message. So the message that we tell other people is, here's Jesus, believe in Him. But how do we go about doing that? And I think that there is room for a variety of approaches within this main idea, which is our method is to use God's Word to meet people where they're at. And I want to try to illustrate that for you from a number of places in the book of Acts. Sometimes we will look at giving the gospel to people and we'll be hesitant to do so because we might think, I'm imposing my beliefs on someone else. Some people will give that as the reason for why they don't want their kids to go to church. Well, I don't want to force them to believe a certain thing. I just sort of want them to make up their minds on their own. I don't want to impose certain beliefs on them. So we find it easy perhaps to be hesitant about giving the gospel to people because we almost feel badly that we're imposing on them in some way by giving them the message. Sometimes another thing that we might think is that the gospel, the method that we use, is simply to share our testimony. God saved me. And while that can certainly be part of what we say to people, it shouldn't be all of what we say to people. Because God saved me is essentially history. This is what happened. It doesn't necessarily take the next step and call for a response or explain in detail what it is we're wanting them to respond to. Evangelism, using, uh, it, taking the gospel to people, is not primarily about social action, public involvement, different things that a lot of people will do, and they'll say, particularly in the context of missions, things like uh, clean water or medical care or those sorts of things. I guess the way that I would put it is this. Those things may make people more receptive to you presenting the gospel, but those things in and of themselves are not gospel ministry. And they don't always lead to gospel ministry because there's any number of cases where you have uh, various celebrities going around and promoting different causes like clean water and all those sorts of things, and they're certainly not interested in presenting the gospel. And so the things... Sometimes the, the gospel presentation can be done in the context of those things, but it's not that in itself. And that's where I think, as a church, we have to be careful about the sorts of things that we involve ourselves in, in terms of what we consider evangelism and missions, because there are a whole lot of good things that we could do, that we would, no one would say are bad things to do. But if we never get to the point of actually giving the gospel to people then we have, to be, we have to say, is that really our job as a church about whether we should be doing all those things? Some would also argue that giving the gospel is not necessarily apologetics. And sometimes we have this idea, I can't give the gospel to people because I can't come up with all these clever and amazing arguments that are going to just sort of help them to see the light and trust in Jesus. And the good news is that we don't have to. We don't have the power, we don't have the ability, but we are all called to take the gospel message. So, who's qualified? If you know Jesus, you are qualified to tell someone else how to trust in Jesus. And then finally, not focusing on the results, because it's really easy for us to say, again, kind of connected with the idea of, of arguing people into heaven, 
I want to see these particular results, and it's all up to me, and I just have to find the right combination of words, actions, activities, all of those sorts of things, and then this person is going to trust in Christ. And then we start to cross the line of what Paul warned against about not peddling, selling, marketing God's Word to people around us. Now, do we make it difficult and create unnecessary obstacles? No, but it's not a product that we just sort of tweak until somebody's willing to accept it. So we need to use God's Word. The detail can vary. Let me illustrate this for you from two examples. First of all, you have Stephen in Acts 7. His sermon is 51 verses. It wasn't a short sermon. It was a long sermon in which he went into great detail about what God had done and what God was calling the people of Israel to do in response to that message. And then you have a very brief presentation, at least in terms of what's recorded for us. Paul and Silas with the Philippian jailer. He says, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Very short, very short answer, response, what it is that he's supposed to do. Now, certainly, I'm sure he heard conversations and things that Paul and Silas were having there in the jail. It's not as though it was entirely in a vacuum that he had no knowledge whatsoever, but a very short presentation. So sometimes we think, I can't give the gospel unless I've got an hour or two hours or a day to sit down and talk to someone about it. And the reality is, we usually don't have those sorts of opportunities every day of the week. But what we can do is be regularly looking for opportunities to present the gospel. I think it's also important for us to recognize that the starting point of our conversations about Christ can vary. The Romans road is a good method. Using a particular tract may be a good method. If it has scripture used well, use that tract. But it's easy for us to sort of fall into the rut of saying, this is the one way that I present the gospel. This is the only way that I present the gospel. Let me try to illustrate this point from a few places in the book of Acts. First of all, how did Peter, Stephen, Philip, and Paul speak to people who are Jewish or who were proselytes. They were converts to Judaism who were Gentiles. Well, we see in Acts 2. If, uh, feel free to turn there if you want. Acts chapter 2. You have... And look in verse 17. you have an extensive quotation from the book of Joel. And then, if you turn the page, verse 25 and following, you have extensive quotation from Psalms. And then used again in verse 34. And so we see that part of the method that Peter used when presenting the gospel to the Jews was to point them back to the Old Testament and draw connections between what the Old Testament Scripture said and what was true in their present circumstance and in connection with Christ. If you flip over to chapter 4, you 
You have the same thing in chapter 4 and verse 11, where Peter quotes the Old Testament and says, He is the stone which is rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Again, he's using a quotation from the Old Testament. And he is emphasizing, verse 10, just above that, Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified. And he had said the same thing in Acts chapter 2. You don't have to turn back there, but he said, This man you nailed to a cross. So he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's emphasizing their guilt in the death of Christ. He's going to also... Uh, in connection with this, you also have the example of Philip. Turn over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 and verse 30. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you are reading? He said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this, He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth? The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this Scripture he preached Jesus to him. So you have a technique of explanation of Scripture used in connection with those who had some familiarity with the Bible. The Jews were certainly familiar with the Bible. It seems that this particular man also was familiar with the Bible because he had been up to worship in Jerusalem. He's got a copy of at least the portion of Isaiah that he's looking at, and Philip is explaining Scripture to him. We also see, as we keep going in Acts 13... There's an extended section in Acts 13, verses 16 through 41, and we see that Paul is going to use a similar approach to what, uh, to what Peter did and to what Philip did. He reminded the people of their history, and he describes, starting in verse 16 on down through the chapter, he describes what was going on from the Old Testament and then he describes the events that God had carried forth in their present time. In verse 30, God raised him from the dead. For many days he appeared, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. And then he says in verse 33, he quotes again Psalm 2, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He quotes from more psalms throughout the rest of his sermon here. And again, he calls them to a response at the end and says essentially... Believe the gospel so that what God has said in the Old Testament in terms of judgment will not come on you because you have rejected God's word. So Paul uses a similar approach to Peter and to Philip in using the Old Testament scriptures and warning them about judgment that will come if they reject the message, in emphasizing guilt in rejecting Christ. In Acts 23... You keep turning to Acts chapter 23. Paul has an interesting approach to the circumstance in which he finds himself. 
he is standing before a group of Sadducees and Pharisees. And he says, Brethren, in verse 6, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Now granted, in this context, Paul was not specifically presenting the gospel, but he was recognizing the particular theological background of the people that he was addressing. And I think that that will be important as we continue to look at some of these examples. Turn a little bit further to Acts 26. The entirety of this chapter is Paul's defense before King Agrippa. The difference between this and his presentation to the Jews is that it's interesting to note that he doesn't have Old Testament quotes in his presentation, his defense, his message before King Agrippa. He describes the circumstances of how he came to be standing on trial before Agrippa. He describes his own guilt in persecuting the saints. He describes his conversion experience. And then he says he is proclaiming what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that Christ would suffer, verse 22 and 23, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And then he says in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. So it seems that he's doing a very similar thing in this chapter to what he does in other places, except he is also simplifying his message because Agrippa would at best have been a nominal Jew. He was very uh, tied up in the Roman political system. He was far more concerned about his standing with the Romans than his standing before God, and yet he had acquaintance with the Old Testament. And yet Paul doesn't go into great detail with uh, quotations from the Old Testament. He just simply presents the message and says, you know the truth of what I'm saying. You know God's word. Are you going to respond to it? So what, does, what characterizes the presentation of Peter, Stephen, Philip, and Paul to the Jews? They quote from the Old Testament. They explain Scripture. They emphasize the guilt of the people in crucifying their Messiah. They speak in another passage of the kingdom of God. They talk about ideas like resurrection or not resurrection from the dead. And they'll even simplify, Paul even simplifies the message here in Acts 26 for someone who was Jewish but not particularly devoutly Jewish. What was the approach when they were speaking to Gentiles, particularly in the case of Paul? Let me, let's look at three examples together. Turn back to Acts 14. Acts 14, starting in verse 14, the context is that Paul heals a man who is lame. The crowds see this man being healed, and they assume that Paul and Barnabas are gods. They call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes the messenger of their gods. And they gather oxen and garlands and want to offer sacrifice. 
When Barnabas and Paul hear of it, they tear their robes. They rush out in the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are men of the same nature of you, and preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. What things do they emphasize about God to these pagans? They emphasize that God is the true creator. They emphasize God's blessing through creation. They emphasize their need to repent and turn away from their idolatry and to turn to God. Turn over to Acts or, uh, Acts 16.31, we already looked at. Turn to Acts 17, the passage that we read today, earlier in the service. Paul is standing up in the middle of the Areopagus. He's observing their religious nature. He says, I see an altar that you made to an unknown God. And then what does he emphasize about the true God? Verse 24 the God who made the world and all things that are in it. God is the creator. What does he emphasize next? He does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands. In other words, you don't need to be making temples to God. You don't need to be making idols about God. Verse 29, the divine nature is not gold or silver or stone. You want to worship the unknown God? The God that you don't know is the true God. The true God is the Creator. The way that you worship Him is not the way that you've been worshiping all these other gods. It's by turning away from your idolatry and repenting of your sins and believing in the One who is coming to judge the earth. So he's using Scripture. He's not necessarily directly quoting Scripture, but he's using clearly the ideas of Scripture to craft a presentation of the gospel that calls them to repentance, to turn away from a localized God, a God with limited power, to the God who is the creator, who made the entirety of everything, a God who they cannot ultimately work their way to, which is what they've been doing with all these other gods, but a God who instead requires them to turn away from their sin and trust not in themselves, but in the one whom he sent, who is Jesus. And then he also gives them the warning, if you don't repent, there is coming judgment. We see this again in Acts chapter 24. Just two short verses there. You can turn there if you like. I'll read them for you. Some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. So what was the approach of Paul to the Gentiles? He used scripture, but not always necessarily direct quotations. He emphasized God as creator. He alluded to their beliefs and culture and pointed out the things that were elements of truth in those things. He reminded them of righteousness self-control and judgment, at least in the example of his conversation with Felix. So, was there a difference in the approach of the presentation of the gospel to the Jews versus the Gentiles? I think we'd have to say yes. When we compare all of these accounts, the Jews were clearly assumed to have had a better understanding of God based on the Old Testament 
and that was the starting point for these messages that Peter and Paul and others used in presenting the gospel to the Jews. The Gentiles didn't really have that background. What was their primary obstacle to following God? It was the fact that they were idolaters. In many cases, they worshipped many gods. And so where did Paul start in presenting the gospel to them? You're worshipping the wrong God. Here is the true God. So there's different places that we can start with people in our presentation of the gospel depending on their religious background, their familiarity with the truth of Scripture, but we have to present the gospel clearly. We have to have a clear verbal witness, a clear verbal explanation. Why? Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So what does this look like? We need to pray, because God is the one who saves. Ultimately, it is not our ability that brings people to Christ. And so, if we're going to have success in this, we must pray. We need to use the Bible. There are different places that we can start. We can start with the Romans Road. We can start with a particular track. We can have a conversation with someone and find out what it is that is the particular point that they don't understand or is their specific objection to Christianity, to believing in Jesus. The way that you will find that out is by talking to people. Because it's really easy for us to say, so-and-so is a Muslim. All right, let me go pull my world religions book off the shelf. Here's what Muslims believe. Here's what my friend believes. All right, here's where I'm going to start with him. You will find that most people that claim to be of a particular faith are not going to follow that faith in every point like you would read out of a textbook. So to understand what they actually believe, you have to talk to them. You have to find out what it is that is their objection to God, what it is that they don't understand, and you have to take Scripture and use that to explain who God is to them. So just an example. I worked with a guy who was a Jehovah's Witness for, I guess it was about seven or eight months. Didn't believe that Jesus is God. So that was one of the things that I would emphasize to him over and over again. I would point out passages to him that said, Jesus is God. Were there other things that he needed to hear about the gospel? Yes. But that was the primary thing that needed to be overcome for him to believe. Certainly, the Holy Spirit needed to take God's word and help him to believe, but that was the thing that he particularly believed that was wrong that was an obstacle to him accepting Jesus, who is described as God in the Bible. If you have a friend who is a Mormon, who again believes that Jesus is not God, believes some form of idolatry that we can all become gods, again, what can you emphasize? Jesus is God, we are not gods and will not be gods. If you have a friend who is a Roman Catholic, what can you emphasize with that person? There is nothing that you can do to work your way to God. They'll say, yes, Jesus plus this. No, nothing you can do to work your way to God. And just from conversations with different Catholic people, I don't think you're going to make much headway pulling out the decrees of Vatican councils and the catechism of the church because most people don't know that and don't read that. What you need to do is take Scripture and help them to see 
It's not that you go to heaven by following these rituals and by being a good person and by doing things certain times of the year. You come to be in a right relationship with God by knowing His Son and having a relationship with His Son. So whatever the person that you're talking to is, whatever their background is, find out what it is that they believe that's false and take Scripture and use that to confront them with it. Whether it's direct quotations from Scripture for the person that's read the Bible over and over again, whether it's the ideas of Scripture for someone who has no idea of what the Bible says and, and working your way into pointing them and maybe doing a study through a particular book, something along those lines, we have to use God's Word to connect with people where they're at and point them to the truth about God. We have to be clear. It's real easy for us to slip into Christian jargon. Say, you need to have faith in Jesus. Or, for example, say, well, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. What does that mean? You need to be born again. That one, I think we have a biblical basis for saying that one, but we've got to explain it, right? Take him to John 3. What does that mean? Because they're going to have the same question Nicodemus did. How does that work? Other words that we may think that they understand, like sin, they may think, well, sin is just things that make society not run well. Or sin is things that I've defined as things that I don't like. Help them to see that sin is that which offends God. Help them to see that sin is that which violates who God is. Explain the words that you're using. Ask questions to make sure that they understand what it is that you're saying. Don't just say, here's three things. All right, you want to pray? Make sure that they understand the truth that you're trying to explain. Speak it clearly. Ask questions to help them think. It doesn't have to be antagonistic. Sometimes it could just be something as simple as maybe there is some guy that gets arrested on Wall Street and they're complaining about all these terrible people who are corrupt uh, business leaders. Why does that bother you? You believe everybody's out there to, to make ends meet for themselves. You believe that we should sort of get out there and, and survival of the fittest and all that sort of thing. Why does it bother you if that guy's doing better than you? He has the evolutionary advantage. You don't have to be antagonistic about it. Maybe there's a better way to say it than I said it just then. Ask questions to help them think and recognize that they know the truth. They're trying to ignore the truth. They have a sense of right and wrong. That is your ally in this task. Everyone knows there's a God if they look around them. Everyone knows there's right and wrong. They try to come up with creative explanations that God didn't make everything and that conscience is just a function of society. But the Bible says everybody has that knowledge of God. Everybody knows right and wrong. So use those things to your advantage as you talk to people. Ask questions that will make them think, that will make them say, I am stealing bits and pieces of my view of looking at the world from Christianity. Because then it will ask them, why am I doing that? Because it's true. Use the church. Invite them to come to church, not because someone gets saved when they walk in these doors. Invite them to come to church so that they can see other Christians and so that we can all work together to connect with people and 
take another step in presenting the truth to them. Sometimes you may talk to someone over and over and over again, and then someone else talks to them, and that's the point at which God chooses to save them. So we can all help one another in this task. It's not like you sort of bring them in the pew and sit them down and then your job is done. It's just part of the whole process of what God is doing to be a witness and example to those who don't know Christ. What's our manner? Our message? Here's Jesus. Here's what the Bible says about Him. Our method? Use the truths and ideas of Scripture to confront people where they're at with what God wants them to do, which is to turn away from their sin and trust in Christ. What is our manner? Our manner is to be, I believe, honest, urgent, and joyful. And I'm borrowing this uh, just to be completely frank with you from the fourth chapter of that book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. I've added some other texts that I think support this as well. What does it mean to be honest? Don't say to someone, the Christian life will solve all of your problems. Because when Jesus called people to follow Him, and He said, take up your cross and follow Me and deny yourself, that's not language of everything will be great and wonderful if you follow Me. That's language of, are you willing to follow Me at all costs? Also, be honest that Jesus wants the entirety of our lives. He wants our full obedience, not just a one-time acknowledgement and then go back to doing everything else I was doing. So it's not pray this prayer and then you can just keep doing everything else you were doing. Be honest that God saves people so that they will be holy. That's clear from Ephesians. That's clear from 1 Peter 1.15. Just as He who called you is holy, be holy in all you do. So God doesn't save us to leave us exactly the way we are. God saves us to transform us. So don't try to hide that fact when you're presenting the gospel to people. Be honest about the fact that the rewards are future and the rewards aren't necessarily things that we can touch and grasp, at least at the present time. We tend to want something that gives us immediate benefit in material ways. I get something now and I get something that I can touch and feel and benefit from, whether it's money or experience or something else. This is something that I can have right now. This is something that I can know what it's like right in front of me. But in reality, the Christian life is a marathon and not a sprint. It is an investment. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's taking the long view instead of being short-sighted. So be honest. Be urgent. Jesus is the only way, right? John 14, 6 says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12, the apostle said, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is one way to God. That means there's a whole lot of people following a whole lot of false paths that will not lead them to God. Secondly, not only is Jesus the only way, but those who have rejected Jesus are already condemned, according to John 3. And they face judgment down the road, according to 2 Thessalonians 1. So not only is there only one way, but if you're not following that one way, you already, you already stand condemned by God and will be judged in the future. 
And then, of course, we're all well aware of this. Our lives are short. James 4, your life is a vapor. Hebrews 4, same kind of idea. Our lives are short. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. There's one way, and there's judgment outside of that one way. That should give us a sense of urgency. We should communicate that when we talk to people. It's really easy for us to say, here's a tract, and we sort of give it to the person, and we're like, all right, I'm going to run away now. This is serious. Do we have a sense of the urgency of it? Are we honest with them? This isn't a cruise or a vacation or a a whatever sort of a thing that I'm trying to sell to you. Are we conveying a sense of urgency? This is something that you need to do right now. Are we conveying a sense of joy? That trusting Jesus is worth it. It may be hard in this life, but it's still worth it. Why did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy that was set before Him. Why do we live the Christian life? In part, because there is joy that has been promised, that we will share in in God's presence, and that we get glimpses of throughout our lives now. Salvation brings many blessings, fellowship with other Christians, fulfillment of God's promises, all of the things that it talks about in Ephesians, about the Holy Spirit being the down payment of our salvation, all of those other blessings that are described in the Bible, deliverance from bondage to sin and death, to being instead servants of Christ and possessing eternal life, we have all of those blessings now and we will have yet greater blessings in the future. So all of the things that we give up are not really things that had any value to begin with and are not things that have a good result in the long run. And so that ought to provoke us to have a sense of joy when we share the gospel with people. So how do we do evangelism? Get the message right. It's about Jesus. It's not about a whole bunch of other things. It's about Jesus. Get the method right. Use God's truth. Because that's what's going to save people. Not a bunch of theories, not a bunch of arguments that we think are going to just sort of sort of tip the scales so someone will trust Christ, use God's Word. And as we present the Gospel, do it in a way that is straightforward, that stresses that this is a command from God that we need to do something with right here and right now, and that there is joy in following Christ. So do you do evangelism right? If you haven't been sure how to start, maybe some of the passages that we looked at give you an idea, give you some examples of where to start. If you've been doing it the wrong way, again, maybe some of the things we've looked at will help correct that. If you've been doing it already, keep up the good work. Do it the right way, because God calls every one of us to take the gospel to the world around us. So are we going to do it? And are we going to do it well? Let's pray. Lord, it's easy for us to make excuses for why we don't share your word. Because we haven't properly caught a glimpse of the love of Christ that compels us to follow you as we should. 
It's easy for us then to say we're not sure where to begin, but your word gives us many examples of how we can begin. Lord, help us to take the next step in growing, in sharing the gospel with people around us. Whether that's meeting someone who doesn't know you, whether that's taking the uh, courage and the initiative to talk to them about you instead of all the other things that it's easier for us to fall into the pattern of talking to them about. Whether it's inviting them to church, whether it's whatever it might be, Lord, you have promised that your word is powerful to salvation. You have promised that you desire to save people. All you've asked us to do is take the message. Lord, help us to be faithful at doing that task that you have given to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.